Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because it's a birthday show. I'm joined by the birthday boy. The day that we are recording this, May 25th, is the birthday of one Adam Risky. Hey Adam. I'm a unique Gemini Risky little weasel. (laughs) Adam got to pick the movie for this week's podcast as his birthday show. What movie did you pick, Adam? I picked Color of Night because Jane March and May, there's no other way. (laughs) That's the first and last time uh, I think anyone's talked about Jane March on this show. Yeah, uh, well, no, I I know that I've talked about Jane March on the show. A lot of Tarzan and the Lost City talk, or what? Yeah, yeah. I think it was always like, what else was she in? Uh, Tarzan and the Lost City. Well, yeah, <laughs> I think. I right? mean, like in the past, I was like, what else oh, was right, she in? Right. Yeah. Remember when? Not now. By the way, remember when like a Tarzan movie came out? With uh, Alexander Skarsgård and Margot Robbie and made like $100 million and does not exist. Yeah, it's weird that all of the copies of it were burned in a fire. <laughs> that is a movie that does not exist and yet was a hit and had movie stars. I walked out of that, I remember. <laughs> I think maybe you did the right thing because I saw it and I remember none of it. Yeah. It's not just, like, vanilla for a movie. It's, like, if you got, like, Edie's ice cream vanilla. So it's, like, the vanillaest of vanillas. Right, right. Uh, what movie did you actually pick for your birthday show? Uh, I picked Encino Man. And the reason being, it's not like I've got this grand history with Encino Man. But when we were working on our summer 92, when we got to the May 22nd date, it was Alien 3, Far and Away, and Encino Man. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And I knew, we both kind of knew the answer had to be Alien 3 for the column. But I think both of our hearts wanted Encino Man. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this could be a fun conversation because I don't know too many other people who have like really dug deep into Encino Man. No, I'm sure there are podcasts that have. There's got to be like a podcast devoted just to the movies of Polly Shore. Um, and I know you had that short-lived Les Mayfield podcast. Yeah. Less is more. Which I thought was good. <laughs> 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 um, so we are going to be talking about Encino Man in just a little bit. A reminder to everyone that next week begins June Sploitation, our month-long celebration of exploitation and genre films. Go to afthismovie.com for all the details on June Sploitation. Adam, are you excited for this year's event? Yeah, I wrote out a whole list of what I want to watch and it's a mix- it, it, the the key thing is it's all DVDs that I own that I like hardly ever watch or have not opened yet. Okay. So that's why I'm going for it. That's a, that's a good strategy. Yeah. And I, I've done that in the past and I've worked, it's worked out pretty well because then I've watched stuff like lock up or sugar Hill. And I've been pleasantly surprised by a lot of, a lot of them. Yeah. I've, I've gone like all new to me in the past and that hasn't really worked. Um, I would love to go with like a lot of revisits this June, but again, all of my movies are in boxes, so I'm subject to what's available on streaming. Um, so I have no idea how this June is going to go. 
Yeah. I don't know. Just go with your gut. Have fun with it. Yeah. 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 You could, um, you if, if you get stumped and you need, like, creative inspiration, you could listen to the sister podcast of Less Is More, which is Le- uh, East Meets Less, where I go abroad and I introduce other countries to the works of Les Mayfield. <laughs> I had that. I remember that competing Jay Moore podcast that was also called Less Is More, but I thought I could get away with it because the spelling was different. But we bailed yeah, after that, Plu- after Pluto Nash. That was a super awkward weekend when we found out yeah. that we were. We, it was like our face off. It was a little <laughs> a little testy. <laughs> we what a predicament. <laughs> Except that's broken. I'm so arrow, mad right? I didn't say that to Travolta when I met him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Encino Man, just a little bit. But first, Adam, have you seen anything good lately? Uh, yeah. So I've I have like a lot of movies I want to talk to you about. But right. I'll go I'll go pretty quick. Um, so I've been just really rewatching a lot of stuff, and the stuff that I've watched that's new is just you know it's like I I tweeted about a week ago where it's like. VOD, all like an all VOD diet of new movies is like a bad diet of <laughs> movies. Like it's not great. So like even when stuff is okay, it's like whatever. So I've been retreating back to older stuff. So um, last Friday, I was I put myself to the test one more time and rewatched ET the Extraterrestrial at the drive-in. At the drive-in, and it was real hot. And I was uncomfortable watching the movie, but for whatever reason, the ET magic finally found its way to my heart, my heart light, and it was the best that it's ever been. For Yay! Me. That makes me yeah. so happy to hear. Yeah, uh, and I, I texted you and Erica about this, but I think the thing that I kind of latched onto this time was that everybody in the movie, all the human characters, start out as these sad, broken people. And then this miracle happens where an alien comes to Earth and it's this really positive experience. And then even though E.T. leaves and that's sad, you could also look at it as they're going to have this memory, this kind of like larger than life experience that's going to be able to lift them up whenever they think back on it. So that's kind of what I took from it this time. Again, I always go back to that scene with Peter Coyote where... He gives that speech to Elliot where, you know, any other movie he would be like kind of sinister or evil. And instead he gives that amazing speech to Elliot. Like, I'm so glad he found you. And it's yeah. so, it's so not what any other movie would do. It's such a special movie. I'm so glad. How was the experience of the drive-in? You've gone the last uh, three weekends. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty much done. Like that novelty's worn off because there's some great stuff about it, but um, it, it is like an ordeal, like when the movie doesn't start till eight forty-five, but then they sell out at six, so you have to get there super early. And then sitting in your car's hot, and then like if you're getting out of your car, you got to wear a mask. And then um, everybody's like pretty well behaved there, so I'm not worried about you know a Lake of the Ozarks situation. <laughs> but um, it, it's not the most comfortable environment to watch a movie in. So like now that I kind of have gotten my fix, I probably won't go back to the drive-in until they start showing like newer movies. Like if at the end of the summer they have 
Wonder Woman 84 still coming out or Bill and Ted face the music and it's playing at the drive-in, then I would love to go see it there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, and then speaking of aliens, I rewatched, um, an old favorite of mine, Lilo and Stitch, which I've never talked to you about. Are you a fan of that movie? I've never seen it. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite of the Disney animated movies. And I, I just really love how it's very sweet and it's not afraid to be really weird. It's got this, like the little girl and then the alien are both these misfit characters. And it's not like stock misfit characters. It feels like born out of like the people who wrote the movie, like were misfits when they were growing up. And like, these are their behaviors and things like that. So it feels like really lived in. And then just the, the style of animation, it's very, it, it looks like watercolors and it's all Hawaii and Elvis music and stuff. And it's just a delight. So I rewatched that and uh, I had a great time revisiting it. I hadn't seen it in a number of years. Is that, um, I'm, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but is that playing on Disney plus? Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll yeah. watch it. Yeah. You can skip the direct to video sequels as in most cases with Disney movies, but the, uh, the original Lilo one's Stitch really cool. Two, Stitch is a bitch. <laughs> yeah, your Stitch is on my list. <laughs> um, let's see. I watched Gross Point Blank for the first time. Uh, that surprised me that you had never seen that. Yeah, I, um, I, I don't know. Like when I was growing up, I wasn't a big Cusack guy, so like I just didn't. I, I like John Cusack movies in the nineties with the exception of stuff like Conier or uh, I don't even know what else I watched of his in the nineties, but like they always seemed like the cool kids in high school, like really got it. And I wasn't there yet. So <laughs> like I, I didn't really go watch many of them. Um, but then I, and I don't know, like I think this time around, like when I was watching gross point Blake, it was like, I was getting used to it as I was watching it. But then by the end I was like, Oh, the next time I watch this, I'm going to love it. And I like it more and more as I'm watching the movie. Okay. And it has like a surprisingly good Dan Aykroyd performance, which I'm not (laughs) used to post like 1988, (laughs) which is funny because he's just doing Dan Aykroyd. I mean, he's doing the same Dan Aykroyd that he does in almost everything. But when he uses those powers for evil, it takes on a different meaning. Yeah, it felt like he was really, like, going into his, like, skull vodka, like, conspiracy theory <laughs> personality, which was good. And then, like, this was the movie that uh, gave me the mini driver crush that I was supposed to have back in the 90s. So right. she's she's fantastic in the movie. And then the thing that I just really loved about Fusak's performance and just, like, the writing was he's telling everybody that he's like a professional killer and nobody believes him. And then they find interesting ways to have like, you know, the big talk scene, but then they like couch it within an action sequence. Right. And it's great because it's just so off kilter. So I, I I really enjoyed it. That's sweet. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that movie. That's a movie that I've seen many many times if we are doing like 90s handshake movies that might very well make my list because i know it by heart yeah yeah it's a good one um and then uh i know there's one that we both watched but i'll get to that last but i did um i've watched three movies so far during my birthday wow i watched at middleton 
which did you ever watch at middle i didn't and i was supposed to because i know you really liked it and i just never got to it it's all good um so i watched that one at 2 30 because i had a nightmare (laughs) and i woke up yeah yeah so like the it was weird because like my entire birthday started with just like I had two nightmares overnight in between at Middleton. <laughs> so it was like a little crusty because my subconscious was taxing my dreams hardcore. I like that you're already using the parlance of Encino, man. You're really getting yeah. into it. I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> but at Middleton is just like a comfort movie for me. I It's weird because like there's moments in it that are so bad that they're kind of embarrassing, but it almost <laughs> makes me rally around the movie more and it's got like this great loose comedic andy garcia performance which i've never seen in a movie of his before and like vera farmiga is all like wiggly and cute and i just want to like get her to stand still and so i can hug her (laughs) and um i don't know it also just like i'm kind of a mark for movies where they're set on college campuses and movies where you know, two people meet for the first time and they kind of have this stolen day where they like are falling in love and they shouldn't have ever met and spent this day together. So it's really good if you like, um, like a before sunrise type of movie, but a little bit lighter. It's, it's that type of thing. All right. And then I kept up with that theme and I watched Dogfight, which is one of my favorite movies. Which I've also so, never uh, seen. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I figured you would have seen that one. Um, but yeah, that one's good. I mean, like I didn't get anything new out of it this time, but I just love River Phoenix and Lily Taylor in it. And the final moments of that movie are just kind of sublime. So I, I, I was always happy to revisit that one. And it was just felt like another birthday comfort movie to watch. And then the last one was I watched uh, Spider-Man 2 again, and this was the first time I'd seen it in a while. And this is the first time i've watched spider-man 2 where now i think i like spider-man 2 the most out of all the spider-man movies oh i thought <laughs> you were already there you you no, liked you liked the original okay. like i've always loved one and two like yeah. they're in my top five superhero movies of all time but two was all or one was always the one that like kind of spoke to me more and then two now i don't know what it was like this time it just kind of like really really worked for me and i think now after watching one and two pretty close together it's kind of undeniable that i like two a little bit more now at this point in my life um the thing i kept picking up on this time was like this mary jane relationship it's like a real roller coaster in a way that i don't think is really talked about it's not so much like she's like oh my god get it together peter but like she throws daggers at him (laughs) and it's like she'll be like at his birthday party and she's just like is there something you want to say to me and she's just like egging him on to say like you know i love you mary jane and then like i don't know where she's just like oh yeah i'm seeing somebody and he's got like a huge dick and it's great (laughs) (laughs) and peter's just like oh what 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 and she's just like yeah i think i'm gonna get married (laughs) (laughs) he's like do you want to reconsider and she's like i don't know Maybe. And then they get a car thrown at them. They do get a car thrown at them. I feel like Peter missed out on not getting together with the girl who gives him cake. Like the landlord's daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, you know, they seem to be setting that up as a possibility. 
they seem like they would be a couple that makes sense. <laughs> um, Spider-Man two has always been my favorite and it's probably still my favorite superhero movie or comic book movie or whatever you want to call it. Um, I need to revisit it because Erica and I have our redoing our lists of 2004 coming up. And so that'll be on there. I'm sure. But if, if for no other reason than the, it has the best last shot of maybe any superhero movie. Yeah. That ending is incredible. It's, I can't even wrap my head around the confidence that Sam Raimi had to end his movie that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just like the, the the script too, like because I think they got Elvin Sargent who did like Ordinary People, so it's just like an unusual person to pick to to write a comic book script, and he seems like really invested in the interpersonal relationships and the dialogue, yeah. and it, it really benefits the movie. Like at the end, when she, and it it's great too because it's not like Hulk where it's so clinical that it's not, it doesn't have that like pop sensibility anymore. Like at the end of the movie, when she says like, isn't it about time somebody saved your life? It's like, Oh my God, that's like one of the greatest things I've ever heard in a movie. <laughs> and, it's in Spider and it's in the sequel to Spider-Man. So. Yeah. Sam Raimi gets my, the version of Spider-Man that I like, you know, um, because obviously there's been a lot of different versions of Spider-Man, but he's very much doing like old school sixties Spider-Man. And that tends to be my favorite incarnation. And he really just nails, uh, all of that. And, uh, and that's part of the problem. You know, we have a whole show devoted to Spider-Man three, which neither of us completely write off and we find things to like in it. But part of the problem is that, you know, there's all this like modern stuff that's sort of imposed upon him that he has to include, including Venom, um, and that he's just not interested in doing. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that Sony pressured him into doing that because one and two were like so widely liked and they did so well that you would think for the third one they would just kind of give him you know, a continued sort of blank check to do what he wants, but right. then they did it. It's very strange. It's yeah, they a said, bummer. They said, uh, you have to include Venom. <laughs> oh God. That's a great <laughs> song, by the way. For a great movie. Such a great movie. Tom Hardy, one of our best actors. <laughs> and now we have a sequel coming out directed by Andy Serkis. Mm-hmm. Yeah who proved himself with that Jungle Book movie that I don't think anyone watched on Netflix. He has to call himself the circus, like the circus yeah. is in town. Yeah. yeah, yeah, He's missing an opportunity if he doesn't. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then we both watched Alien Resurrection. Yes, we did. Yeah. So you, you sent out a very cool slash interesting tweet about it. You want to start there? Uh, I just said that I was rewatching Alien Resurrection, my third favorite Alien movie. And you know what? You're right. Yeah, I am. Because when I rewatched it, I was like, why was I always so down on this? Because this is like Alien Fuck It, and I kind of dig <laughs> it. Um, I know that, like, uh, you know, the screenplay is credited to Joss Whedon, and he's he's whatever um because he's gone to the press before and complained about what they did to his script and like he cried the first time he saw it because they ruined it and made it a comedy or i don't i don't know i don't remember exactly what he said 
but he has more or less disowned the movie, um, which again I find fascinating because I I we had just watched Alien Three for that ninety two column that we've been writing, and uh, I really prefer Alien Resurrection. Yeah, I. I it, they're so different that they're almost difficult for me to compare. Absolutely. They feel like different franchises altogether. But I'm surprised Joss Whedon was upset so much about it because all the characters speak like Joss Whedon characters. So it still feels like it's got his signature on it. It's like the Firefly crew crash lands yeah. right with xenomorphs. Yeah. Dan Hedaya has so much shoulder hair. <laughs> like, I this is sort of like ever since quarantine. Like, one of my big takeaways is just how hairy Dan Hedaya is because it's like Alien Resurrection, where he's wearing a like a men's tank top and it's barely containing his shoulder hair. And then in For Love or Money, which I watched last month. There's just a scene where it's just the full Hedaya, and it's just like, really? You like you didn't have like a stylist or something? <laughs> like a hair and makeup person? <laughs> just for his body hair. Yes. Yeah. It's weird. It's a chance at an Oscar that they didn't go for. But <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, that was Alien Resurrection meant to be like a past the torch to Winona Ryder movie? I don't think so. Um, I don't remember what the what the conversation was back in ninety seven. My memory is not that that was the intention, but I okay. could totally be wrong. Yeah, yeah, it felt like it could be with that one because it's such an odd. I don't know. She was she was still kind of a big star at that point. It yeah. wasn't like yeah. when she kind of faded at the in the like Lost Souls little or uh, Mister Deeds time period yet. Right. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, the thing about the Alien franchise is every movie is so different from the other movies, and so they exist. We kind of talked about this in the Alien 3 article, but they they almost exist within their own genre. Um, And it just so happens that Alien Resurrection is a little bit more my vibe than Alien 3. I won't say it's a better movie. Uh, It's just one that I enjoy watching more. It gives me more of what I want out of one of these movies than something like Alien 3 does, which really just makes me feel tired and sad. Yeah. Yeah. Alien 3 definitely has no interest in, like, making an audience have a good night at the movies. No. Which is weird because it's like, it's like, this isn't Macbeth, guys. (laughs) It's alien. <laughs> and I'm all for, you know, taking it seriously and, and you can make a, a, a more, a darker, more somber movie. Um, I just don't think they made one that works for me. You know, right. had they made that version of the alien sequel that was successful, maybe it would be like my favorite in the series. I doubt it because mm-hmm. the, the first two are so, so good, but uh uh, speaking of uh, miserable downer movies, I watched The House That Jack Built. Oh, good for you. <laughs> I recorded it off of maybe Showtime back when I had Showtime. We don't even have Showtime anymore, but uh, like last year sometime. And we were trying to clear some movies off of our DVR, and I decided to start there. And I don't necessarily know why. I have, you know... 
a strange relationship with Lars von Trier, as I'm guessing most people do. I've mm-hmm. really liked some of his movies, and even the ones that I haven't liked, I find interesting or challenging in some way. I would never dismiss a Lars von Trier movie, but he's not one of my guys, you know? Yeah. Uh, and The House That Jack Built really just confirms that. It's certainly my least favorite of his movies that I've seen. Um, it's very repetitive. Um it just goes through these little vignettes, each one. Uh, it's There's like five vignettes, and in each one, Matt Dillon, you know, brutally murders one or more people. Um, the Matt Dillon performance is good, I guess. And it's certainly, for, for a lot of the movie, and it's a long movie, it's like a two-hour, 30-minute or two-hour, 40-minute movie. For so much of it, I was like, I can't even tell that this is a Lars von Trier movie, except for in the way that it seems determined to not satisfy the viewer. Um, And then in the last act, I won't say what happens, but it's like, oh, okay, now this is sort of trying to say something or be about something larger. Uh, I don't. I didn't feel that it succeeded at that, you know, and I, I know that I'm supposed to look at the movie as sort of a black comedy about fragile masculinity and, and misogyny. Um, I, you know, those things came through to me, but I didn't care. It wasn't like that made the movie better for me because I was able to read it on some other level. So I can't really recommend it to anyone. Yeah. I, I think I stopped watching his movie. I I definitely made a point of not watching the house that Jack built because I read a review of it and they were sort of kind of, it was almost kind of like a trigger warning type of review. And as I was reading, I was like, well, I don't need that in my brain. So I didn't watch it. But the last one I think I watched was Nymphomaniac volume one and two. And the first volume I was, it was more comical than like dramatic. And I was just like, Oh, like maybe I was misreading some of his movies where I was taking them too seriously, but then like I watched volume two and it was just kind of the usual, like super, super dark for dark sake. Yeah. And it's like, Oh no, I, I had him pegged correctly the whole time. <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's tough, but I mean, I agree with you. Like he's hard to dismiss. Like he's made some really powerful stuff, even if it's not something that, you want to think about much after you watch it. Right. I, you know, I will probably not watch Antichrist again, but I can't deny that it's an incredibly made movie and, you know, uh, says a lot about a lot. It's just not my, it's not why I watch movies necessarily, but I, I appreciate being challenged and provoked, you know, at times I didn't feel like the house that Jack built was that kind of a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've spent uh, some of this weekend visiting the virtual Chattanooga Film Festival, uh, which was canceled in April. Erica and I were actually going to attend the Chattanooga Film Festival this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, we were planning on it. And, of course, it had to be canceled with everything going on. Um, but they decided to put the entire experience online. Now, that did change the lineup of films. Um, there weren't very many, like premieres the way there would have been if it was an actual film festival. Uh, But they still offered a bunch of films, a bunch of shorts, 
different like live podcasts and script readings. Uh, Ice T was interviewed. Joe Dante was interviewed. So they really did a pretty incredible job putting the whole thing on. Uh, I applaud their efforts, and mm-hmm. I thought the whole thing was very successful. I have didn't love a ton of the movies that I saw, but again, like with most film festivals, I'm always happy to have seen them. There was nothing I saw that I felt like, oh, that was a waste of my time. Um, even when it wasn't totally for me, the one that I want to single out is a documentary. The first film that I watched, uh, which was called Fulci for fake, which is an Italian documentary about the life and career of Lucio Fulci. Uh, there's a, a strange framing device wherein an actor puts on this makeup and plays Lucio Fulci in these brief reenactments. And it seems wholly unnecessary. Um, it's sort of a weird literal, I just said that word in a very strange way, a uh, literal attempt at like understanding who he was by actually, you know, getting in his skin. And, and I just, none of that stuff really was that interesting to me, but they interview a bunch of his collaborators and Fabio Frizzi and his daughters. Um, and they just talk about who, what kind of a person he was and, and, uh, there were some things that I didn't know about uh, that really informed his movies. You know, when he pivots to horror, it happens after a tragedy in his own life. And uh, his daughter is in an accident at one point, And that inspires the twist in one of his most famous horror films of the 80s. Um, I thought it was really, really interesting. There are some things that I wished it had done differently. Like, I just feel like including clips from the movies would have helped um, if Mm. only for context to give a broader view of this is what his work actually looks like, or just to, you know, anytime I'm watching a a documentary like that and they include a bunch of clips, the first thing it does is make me want to go watch all of that person's movies. And I didn't get that after this. I wasn't like, now I feel like going and watching every Fulci movie, but I know if they had included clips, I totally would have had that reaction. My guess is it was a rights issue or something like that. Or they just, you know, wanted the, the interviews to speak for themselves and not include uh, clips from his movies. I don't know, but it's, it's worth checking out. I have no idea what the release plan is. Um, My guess is it'll get some kind of a VOD release at some point. But I, I didn't even catch a distributor at the beginning of it, so I don't know who owns the movie and who will be putting it out. But if you're a Fulci fan, I think it's worth seeing. Is it um, a movie that, say, you're new to Fulci that you would get much out of, or is it mostly for like the tried-and-true fan who has seen most of his movies? I think it's much more for the tried-and-true fan who's trying to understand him a little bit deeper because I don't, it, it's not really giving a, a very broad overview. And again, as they're talking about some of this stuff, because there are no clips, because there's no context. If you haven't seen these movies, you really have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to be familiar with his work. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. That's not, I mean, that that's a really neat idea that, um, yeah, the Chattanooga film fest did with the virtual day. I saw like, the horror hound convention they do like their own film fest at the convention and they were giving a go of like a virtual fest also um this weekend but i didn't i didn't participate in either of them unfortunately but uh yeah it's it's nice that um you know these festivals are being creative and trying to do what they can to 
um, have continuity for their own, you know, festivals, and then also get the get the word out and hopefully help get these movies released. Yeah, for sure. And if you're somebody who you know is is looking for new content um it's a it's a good way to see some new movies you know it's not they're not big tentpole releases or anything like that and some of these movies you may never hear of again some of them uh two that i watched one was called the beach house and one was called scare package i think are both going to be on shutter scare package i think in like two weeks um Mm -hmm. So some of these I know people are going to have the chance to see. Some I have no idea if they'll ever get distribution. But, uh, yeah, it's a really cool thing that they did. So congratulations to everyone involved at the Chattanooga Film Festival. Let's talk about Encino Man, where the Stone Age meets the Rock Age. Wow. I like what you did there. (laughs) I really wanted to see Encino Man in 1992 and I was dating this girl who was like out of my league she was two years older than me I have no idea why she agreed to date me uh she was like a senior and I was a sophomore and it seems like every time we went to see a movie that I wanted to see it was something that she completely hated because it was like Sleepwalkers or The Chase with Charlie Sheen, or Encino Man, which I made us go see, like, the 4 o'clock show, the opening Friday. Um, Because I just couldn't wait until the 7 o'clock show. And I don't even know that I liked it that much in 1992. I just, for some reason, I was desperate to see it. Uh, But what is your history with Encino Man? Um, I mentioned it in the Lethal Weapon 3 article. <laughs> yeah, uh, this this was supposed to be my birthday movie in 92. Um, it was always, you know, like, Adam, you could pick out where you want to go to dinner and, like, we'll take you to a movie. And um, I, th- my parents were kind of angling to go see Encino Man um, because, like, I remember at the time it was, I mean, we know now because we're following the summer of 92. It's like my options were Split Second or Lethal Weapon 3 or <laughs> Alien 3 or Far and Away. So, like, Encino Man for a 10-year-old is probably the most likely uh, pick. And then I was all in on, like, I wanted to see an R-rated movie because it's my birthday and because this was, like, the year after I saw my first R-rated movie in theaters, which was Terminator 2. So I was all about just for the R sake of it, Lethal Weapon 3 or uh, Alien 3. And then my parents were like, that's gross. No, Um, (laughs) Lethal Weapon 3 is what it is. So then I don't think I ended up seeing Encino Man until video. And I don't have, uh, I didn't think before watching it again, and I rewatched it twice for this show. um, I didn't think that I had much of a history with it. But then as I was watching it, there are so many lines of dialogue in this movie that I remembered or know that I've said before. And I I was really surprised how much I enjoyed Encino Man watching it today. What um <laughs> what <laughs> What was Is this going to be an amazing Spider-Man two? <laughs> no, no, no. Because I don't, I don't, I don't hate Encino Man. I just yeah. 
you know, comedy is always hard to do on the podcast. We don't do that many comedies on the podcast because it always comes down to like, I don't know. I didn't think it was that funny. Um, I was surprised at like this obviously is designed or isn't designed that way, but became a vehicle for Polly Shore. Like, I don't think it was originally designed as a vehicle for Polly Shore, but once Polly Shore signs on, um, he kind of takes over and the movie becomes the Polly Shore show in, in a lot of ways, not in all ways. Um, I do think it was interesting that like his first starring role post MTV blow up because he existed, you know, before the MTV blow up, he was kind of a, a struggling actor who popped up in some stuff, including Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but once the Polly persona, you know, kind of blew up on MTV, this was the first movie to take advantage of that. And I do think it's interesting that his first movie isn't really a Polly Shore vehicle the way that something like Son-in-Law is where it's like, okay, this is built around Polly Shore and we're going, you know, he's the star of the movie. He's basically a supporting character in Encino Man. He's just a major supporting character. I think this works much better as a showcase for Brendan Fraser, who you can kind of understand why he would go on to become a star based on this movie. Yeah, I I agree with what you said. Um, like Brendan Fraser, we've we've mentioned him kind of with some admiration before, like we were talking about Blast from the Past, and he's such an undervalued, delightful, comedic actor, and he's so game in all of these performances, and it really just like benefits every single movie that he's in. Um, well, I won't say every single one because, <laughs> you know, he had a, a rough go of it for a while with like the furry vengeances right. and all that. But for a time for, a, you know, for a certain stretch, like he was a definite asset to your comedy. And um, I think he's great in this. And like, there's so many things that on paper, I don't think are necessarily funny. Um, but just hearing him like say Betty Nugs is funny to me. <laughs> Why do you suppose um, <laughs> people kind of have an anti Brendan Fraser position? Is it is it because he made a series of bad movies? Is it because he performs with so little irony that his performances are just sort of big, naked, goofy? big hearted, like, uh, he has no shame, as you said. And, uh, uh, but there seems to be, he's a little bit of like a laughing stock. I feel like. Yeah. I, I, I think it's because his certain type of, you know, just very, um, outlandish humor is, something that kids can easily attach themselves to or like young teenagers, but then it's not really cool or it doesn't have pretense of being cool after a while. Then you kind of want things that are more clever and not as broad. And then I think when you get older, hopefully you come back to, you know, like, no, this was still really funny and really good. And it's not all based on somebody writing something funny for them. It's just that their persona is funny. Cause I think, and we'll get into Polly Shore in a bit, but I think like in Encino man, 
almost everything Brendan Fraser and Pauly Shore do at a certain point in the movie, like somewhere around like the second act, I'm I'm like laughing with them for most of the stuff that they do. And it's because I like their characters so much and I like their performances so much. Um, so it's tough to do that. And I think it's such a, it, this movie is not in any way trying to mask how silly it is. And it just doesn't seem cool to like that. I think if you get to a, certain age in your late teens, early twenties. Well, and that's why I think something like blast from the past is so clever and such a good movie and, and such a, I think such an important uh, way to understand the appeal of Brendan Fraser, because Alicia Silverstone basically goes through that whole arc. Her entire character's arc is like, I'm too cool for this. I'm too cool for this. And then eventually like realizing wait, no, he just is who he is and he has no sense of irony and he is a big goof and that's the appeal of him. Um, and that's, you know, the audience, I feel like that's been my relationship to Brendan Fraser for almost his entire career. I mean, I, I've seen him do dramatic stuff and it's fine and I actually really like him in the first Stephen Summers Mummy. Like, I think he does that <laughs> sort of dashing action hero very well because he does undercut it with a lot of goofiness, you know, and he's willing to be the butt of the joke. But my favorite Brendan Fraser is like Blast from the Past or Bedazzled. Um, are you a fan of the Bedazzled remake? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I do remember thinking it was pretty good. Yeah, it's good. It's good B-phrase. Uh, yeah. And so is Encino Man, yeah. Yeah, I feel like um, I, I was so on board with Encino Man by like the end credits that I was like, why wasn't Fraser Shore and Aston like a comedy trio for a decade? Because Aston is the worst in this movie. <laughs> like, yeah, we'll get to that. Like, I, I feel like you were liking Polly Shore and Brendan Fraser, like in their little adventures on their own, because they'd finally ditched the dead weight that is Sean Aston. It's nothing against him as an actor or performer. It's not that his performance is bad. It's that the character that he's been asked to play is the worst. I think that um, I'm glad that you you said that because I completely agree with the character Sean Astin's playing. But we we really need to like deep dive into this guy because <laughs> like all right, first off, he's like I think I think people over the t over time like in the past you know twenty twenty five years have sort of become enlightened to the myth of the nice guy, and this is like a case study of the myth of the nice guy. Where it's like, oh, you know, he's, he's, he, why, you know, nice guys finish last. It's like, there's a reason why some nice guys, in quotes, finish last. It's because they're creepy, obsessive assholes who carry around pictures of, like, them and their childhood friends in bathtubs together. And, like, they have, like, this manipulative woe is me thing. And they're sort of, like, not taking a hint that their childhood crush maybe just isn't into their dead weight persona because they're a buzzkill and they're not fun and they're mean. <laughs> like it's weird. He's a shitty character. He really is. I, I, I had forgotten just how shitty of a character he is, but yeah, that line where he pulls out the picture and he's like, remember I've already seen you naked. Like that's the, cre I, maybe it's supposed to be funny. Maybe it's supposed to be endearing. It's just creepy and off putting. And he, you're exactly right in terms of this being like 
the perfect example of the myth of the nice guy. Yeah, and he, like, and what is his, uh, one thing that was driving me crazy in the movie was, like, his parents will just let him dig a giant hole <laughs> in their backyard, and then he invites people over for a post-prom pool party in a puddle of mud. It's not a pool. There's no concrete. They heard, they heard puddle of mud, and they were like, we'll be there. Yeah. And then yeah, they were well, surprised to discover it's an actual puddle of mud and not the band. The basic... Tom bait and switch. <laughs> Instead, they have infectious grooves playing their high school prom. Like, what is that? Yeah. They're like, come. He's like, come over for my Lake of the Ozarks COVID <laughs> Petri dish party. It's so, it's so nasty. And like, and Megan Ward is the national treasure. And like, we want the best for her. And the entire time, like, even when they get together at the end, it seems like she's doing it, like, under protest, like there's a gun to her back. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it really, they end up together because the movie dictates that they end up together because clearly she should end up with Link. She yeah. shows more interest in Link. Link is a nicer person. And that would actually teach Sean Astin a valuable lesson that he's not owed something just because he likes this girl. He's not owed her companionship. Um, and I know it's 92 and you know, I'm not expecting Encino man to be woke. I'm, I'm just saying story wise, this makes sense. Even in 1992, I'm not applying modern day uh, expectations to this movie. I'm saying like that makes sense as a, as a better story, but instead they're like, okay, and they'll get together and then we'll dig up links cave girlfriend yeah i have so many questions about like and then what like <laughs> how's like is school difficult for link um what's the plan after the movie's over like does him and his cave woman girlfriend need to like get an apartment now like like they're, they're gonna live in the in the pool hall that's another thing. Like, you know, his dad is, looks like Phil Jackson and like they have a garage where they're just storing cave people. And nobody <laughs> ever, nobody ever goes in the garage and is like, like I've never seen homeowners have less ownership of their own home and just let their children run roughshod over them. I do appreciate, I mean, the movie is, you know, the, the, the dumbest concept. Like what are these two high school buddies dig up a caveman? And go. And they don't mess around with, like, worrying about how that's going to happen or, like, getting into a lot of the logic of it. It's literally just like, yeah, they're digging a pool. They find a caveman. He thaws out. Go. Um, they really lean into the the sort of brainlessness of the premise. And it's like, yeah, you guys are here to see this movie. You're on board for this. So we don't have to spend a lot of time on it. Yeah, it's just this fun party movie. And it goes set piece to set piece. And it's not... Like any nobody's there for the storytelling. <laughs> it's basically like, hey, we've got Vince Neil on the soundtrack. You're already sixty percent in. You're invited, but your yeah. friends can't come. Did you watch the music video for that? I did not. Should I have? It's okay. It's the classic. Like is the Polly cast Shark in it? Get, what is the cast in it? It's just Polly, um, oh. but they've got uh, clips throughout. But it's definitely like. Polly wants to get backstage. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. But um, I saw Vince Neil 
at the uh, summer carnival in my hometown last summer. And I got to tell you, whatever ironic distance you have from it melts away in the first three seconds of him singing. <laughs> He's I, uh, I saw um, Motley Crue live uh, probably close to 10 years ago now at this point. Mike Pomero bought me a ticket for my birthday, mostly just so he could force me to go see Motley Crue. <laughs> um, and uh, Vince Neil was struggling with the high notes. Yeah, there's a lot of like, now you sing Dr. Feelgood audience or kickstart my heart. That was the big one. Like you sing audience. He sounds better when you're like 70 feet in the air on like the carnival giant drop. Got it. Yeah. So, um, all right. So I forgot like how deep this cast was because like the best friend of Megan Ward is Robin Tunney. Yeah, it is. dynamite in this and she's wonderful she's great. and I, she's, I missed rose mcgowan completely oh yeah she's in this too i forgot about that yeah. i didn't even write that down but like uh tunny is like every girl in high school where it's like oh i probably would have had a lot more fun if i went after her than the megan ward <laughs> no she's she's very funny in the movie robin tunny she kind of she she kind of steals scenes. Yeah, I like. Um, there's other there's some other people in this that I liked a lot too. Like I like uh, like I always like Rick Dukeman when he shows up and stuff. And sure. I like his te- that his teacher's bit. It basically is he's like calling on the students, and it's like the expectation is that they're all like burnouts and they'll never know the answer. But like the joke is that they're always listening and they're kind of right. <laughs> and he's just like, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Good job. <laughs> so um, that was good. And then I like, um, I think for, you know, stock, you know, Johnny Cobra Kai bad guys, I think Michael DeLuise De is pretty good as like the Johnny Bravo of this movie. Yeah, he's he, again, takes a character who's just supposed to be the bully or the dick and certainly plays him that way. I mean, he is an unlikable character, but he also makes him funny which is not easy to do. The way that he yells uh, shush is something that I realize I've quoted for a long time. And maybe that's because of the Pauly Shore callback too. Yeah. I, I, I I like him just because he's like Dennis Franz's son on NYPD blue. And also like, yeah, yeah. He, his character gets killed off. He's like the older son. He becomes a cop. And then like, he basically is the, the upstart cop in the Lethal Gedrick, Weapon 3. Yeah, right. He's the Gedrick uh, of NYPD Blue. Yeah, he's the Gedrick. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, like, he reminds me in Encino Man of sort of like, if you took Sean Penn, but then you told him to like play Matt Dillon, <laughs> <laughs> that's Michael DeLuise in this. And for a while, because I hated Sean Astin's character so much, I was just like, kind of siding with him like Johnny and Karate Kid, where I was just like, yeah, just leave well enough alone, daniel son. But then he crosses a line at a certain point. Right. Yeah. But um, And then his comeuppance is getting thrown into a cake at prom. And I don't know about you, but did you have a cake at your prom? I, I don't, don't remember a cake at our uh, prom cake. I don't remember there being one. This is a movie where the filmmakers don't know anything, I guess, about proms, and they don't. They certainly don't know anything about bars. 
because that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. But it's like a full bar of all age groups on a weekday in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really uh, it's really strange. And my memory was that that's where Brendan Fraser does his big dance number. And then I was like, is there even a big dance number? Or am I confusing this with a blast from the past? There's always going to be a scene where Brendan Fraser wins everyone over by dancing. Uh, and that doesn't happen till prom. I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, what's his face? Uh, we got to talk about the bar scene though, a little bit. So like the, uh, what should we call it? Yeah. Is it, it's offensive, right? <laughs> like all the stuff with the Latino guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because again, it's being written by, you know, two presumably white guys and they're like, well, this is how Latino guys talk. Right. And uh, this is how, you know, gang members talk. They call everyone Vato and they say, see that muchacha over there. And it's like, it's what a, it's, it's like what a fourth grader who's a racist would write, you know? Uh, and then they have like chips and salsa on the bar. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> that seems that seems disease ridden to me, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird scene that doesn't totally fit in this movie, but it goes on for like a long time, like it's a lo- it's a lengthy set piece in this movie. Yeah, it's um yeah, it's one of the Pauly Shore showcase scenes, but it's also one of those scenes where like. Megan Ward is so clearly into Brendan Fraser that it's just this betrayal to the movie that she has to end up with, like, Sean Astin and his stupid vest. Well, because if she doesn't, Sean Astin is going to kill Link. <laughs> He's just going to leave him on the side of the road yeah. to die helpless. Uh, and thank God Polly Shore calls him out on it. Yeah, Polly Shore, for some reason, to me, is the funniest when he's trying to be serious. So, like, when he says stuff like, you know, maybe Matt was right about you <laughs> or like <laughs> or like and he goes into that whole thing or he's like, he's like, I just want to be his friend. <laughs> it's just like when he goes sincere or serious, I just can't like I, I, I just think it's so funny. And the thing that I think I'm laughing with Holly Shore, especially in this and son-in-law um is he's so nice like it's not like he's a like a stoner jerk he's like very well intentioned and it's easy to like him but one thing that i don't buy is i feel like his character in 92 in california would be kind of popular and have friends oh yeah for sure especially because he's 40 years old yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, this is, I think, a, a good showcase for Polly Shore. This and Son-in-Law, I think, are the only two Polly Shore movies that I have any real use for. Because um, it falls off pretty hard after that, I think. I don't know. I think In the Army now is okay. But I, I, haven't I haven't seen, seen it. it since the theater, honestly. And yeah, I, I'm not I haven't a, seen it in a long time. I'm not a Biodome guy. I saw Jury Duty once. I don't remember it. Um, He's delightful in a goofy movie. Which I've never seen. Yeah. He's like Max's friend and he's got some good moments. It's an uncredited cameo. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I definitely like had his comedy album in the early nineties and listened to it. And like, 
I don't remember there being jokes. It was just this persona. Like he would just go up on stage and talk this way and people would laugh uh, because I don't remember him writing jokes. And maybe I'm remembering that wrong. Maybe there were lots of jokes, but I just remember the personality coming through mm-hmm. um, like dice without the dirty limericks, you know? Yeah. I went with some friends to see him do stand up in. God, it must have been like 2008, 2009, and it was at the Improv in Schaumburg. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah and um, I was a little bastard back then because that's when I was doing comedy, so I thought, like, I was oddly competitive with, like, professionals. <laughs> with Pauly Shore? <laughs> with Pauly Shore. So, like, while he was on, um, I did this motion to my friends where, like, I was a stick figure man walking on a table, and then I jumped off the table to my death. Wow. Yeah. And um, I remember his comedy bit was like what you said. It wasn't most, it wasn't jokes. It was sort of just talking about his rise and fall. And then it turned into like a session with a psychologist and it was uncomfortable. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't know. But uh, yeah, he was weasel no more. (laughs) He he was a sad weasel. (laughs) The sun grazed his beak. <laughs> I gnawed at his beak. The sun was gnawing at his beak. Bit. I hate that like they have to give him these names in these movies, like Stony and Crawl. Like, just name him Scott. Yeah, I could see him being a Scott. <laughs> I mean, I know his real name in this movie is Stanley. Yeah, there's a couple parts in the dinner scene where like he's over there. He's talking to Richard Mazur, and it looks like Richard Mazur is like trying not to break, and Holly Shore is trying not to break because you can see Richard Mazur is like losing it. And that I always I, I like that. Like there's little moments like that. I think that's kind of why I feel oddly defensive about Holly Shore. <laughs> <laughs> is I just think like I don't know what it is. It's like I don't want to laugh at all. Like I want to be above it, but I'm not. <laughs> And when it finds me, it's undeniable. <laughs> well, does the movie ever like reconcile why? Like, I like all the stuff with Stony turning Link. This is a sentence that I'm saying. Uh, with Stony turning Link into a version of himself, right? And they get their big day out, and then at the end of the day, Sean Astin is like, "Oh, he's talking like you, or whatever." But for some reason, when Link does it, he's the coolest guy in school. And Stoney mm-hmm. is still some sort of misfit outcast. And again, I think part of that is because he's 40 years old and everybody knows it. Yeah. But, but why is it cool for one of them and not cool for the other? I think it's because Brendan Fraser is a tall, handsome guy and Pauly Shore is like a creepy, weird old <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, that might be it. So I think it's just kind of like that base or superficial, but uh yeah, it's it's like the the skit on SNL where Tom Brady's like saying the exact same things as the other guy who's less attractive, but right. everybody's into Tom Brady. Right, right, right. Yeah, but um, yeah, this movie, like, I think the first act of it is kind of slow, and I wasn't really on board. But then when they get to that right right said Fred makeover sequence, oh god, I. <laughs> I feel embarrassed saying this, but I think it's one of the best second acts of, like, the 90s. 
And then it just sort of coasts on that for the rest of the movie. Like, it soars. Like, this movie finds some <laughs> sort of, like, it's like a Sonic the Hedgehog bonus round where, like, the music's great and you're just collecting rings from there. <laughs> it is very much uh, a time capsule of 1992. Everything about it, from the clothes to the music uh, to the hairstyles to the cinematography it always feels like it might turn into a Slim Jim commercial at any minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it is very much a, a time capsule of 1992, which, I mean, is fun as somebody who, you know, lived through 1992. I don't know that anybody born after this is really going to have any use for it. Yeah, it feels like the last dying breath of, like, the Bill and Ted Excellent Adventure wave. Right, right. Because it's like when, like, that heavy metal party thing was sort of on the way out before grunge. It was like that little moment there. I also think it's really weird that, so Sean Astin finds the caveman, and his immediate thought is that this is their chance at popularity. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an insane <laughs> leap that he takes. Like, look, we found a prehistoric man. Finally will be cool. Uh, it's like, guys, I just got the biggest tapeworm. Finally will be cool. Yeah, it's, it's something. And (laughs) I mean, Link, I think under the circumstances really adapts quite well. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's really not, uh, he's not thrown off too much and he's, he's eager to drive a car. Uh, yeah. That's a great sequence. (laughs) (laughs) It's not all your fun and games and disco dancing. (laughs) What is your favorite set piece in the movie? Oh, God. All of them. Um, (laughs) Probably. I don't know. I'm I'm such a mark for, like, theme park montages. (laughs) So I really like that one. Um, I like the one at the bar just because it's so ridiculous that it gets to be really funny. Um, it just keeps going. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the Radmobile thing is just fun. I don't know. This is just a movie where everything, like, after a certain point, I find endearing or funny. It's really odd. <laughs> I don't know that I laughed very much watching it this time. And I, I've probably only seen it. I saw it the day it came out. I'm sure I've seen it once in the ensuing years, and then I watched it again. It's on Vudu, uh, streaming for free with ads, which is how I watched it. Um, yeah, same here. Um, the ads come at interesting moments. Yeah, again, they they put <clears throat> like zero thought into that whole thing, but whatever, it's fine. Um, I don't know that I laughed at all, but it's certainly like a breezy 89 minutes. Yellow for sure, yeah. Um, one of the people who has like a very, very small role in the movie is Jack Noseworthy. What happened to Jack <laughs> Noseworthy? He's, uh, he died on the event horizon. I feel like the way he was being br- like groomed, he could have had everything or nothing at all. <laughs> he ended up with nothing at all. Yeah, it's just... I, I don't know. I mean, you had Breakdown, you had U571, yeah. you had like... Idle, uh, idle Horizon. Hands. He's in Idle Hands. Idle Hands. SFW? 
Is he in SFW? I think so. All right. I don't yeah. like that movie. I don't know. Yeah, I don't like that one either. <laughs> um, yeah. And then uh, I I did a ranking of Hollywood Pictures movies. Oh, I like this. Encino Man is number six for me. Wow. What? Okay. Let's hear the rest of this here. Okay. So um, the Erica tie for number 10 is... Gross Point Blank and Son-in-Law. Encino Man ranked four spots above Gross Point Blank. Hey, man, I can't explain it either. Um, (laughs) Number nine is Judge Dredd. All right. Number eight is Arachnophobia. Okay. Number seven is The Rock. Okay. Number six is Encino Man. (laughs) Right. Number five is Quiz Show. Wow. All right. Quiz Show and Encino Man back to back. Maybe uh, the only time that's happened on any list. <laughs> Number four is Mr. Holland's Opus. Higher than Quiz Show. Oh, boy. Uh, number. It's one of my Dreyfus handshake movies. Okay. I'm not a big. I'm not a big fan of it. So. Uh, number three is The Sixth Sense. All right. Number two is Tombstone. Okay. And you want to take a shot at what my number one is? I would need to look at the list of Hollywood pictures. Uh, Color of Night? No, that's number one in my heart, but (laughs) not in my head. Um, Number one is Crimson Tide. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I need to see Crimson Tide again. I mean, I like it, but it's not like a, a movie that I hold close to my heart. Hollywood pictures is weird because... The idea is it's more adult Disney, but they already had Touchstone for that. So right. what's the delineation between Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures? And weren't these movies supposed to show up on Disney Plus? Wasn't Disney Plus supposed to have like? They should like Encino Man definitely should be on Disney Plus. Except they'll have to edit all the like references to Nugs and stuff. Yeah, Betty Nugs. <laughs> <laughs> So I like, uh, here's some of the lines that I rem- I know I've quoted at some point in my life. I just want to be his friend. <laughs> the cheese is old and moldy. Where's the bathroom? Right. Wheeze the juice. Shoe fly, don't bother me. Ow, my pancreas. I, that got like a three-month run out of me and my friends. Yeah. Um, computer club, computer club. Uh, you want to be a man, weasel? And those are desperate words of a loser. <laughs> yes. That is the big emotional turning point of the movie. Yeah. Um, this movie won Polly Shore a Razzie for worst new star. Give me a break. Well, the Razzies are so stupid. <laughs> like, yeah. They're so, so stupid. Um and that's just evidence of the, you know, you can, you can find Polly Shore irritating and you can think that he's not funny. And I would totally understand both of those positions, but I just, you know, again, it's, they have an ax to grind with his comedy act uh, and are trying to be relevant by taking shots at Polly Shore. I don't know. Um, but I mean, I understand why this became kind of a cult comedy. You know, it seems like, it has kind of a cult following 
built in, you know, from the from the opening weekend. It was like, oh yeah, the people that are going to love this movie are going to love this movie forever, and everyone else will kind of forget it. And that mm-hmm. seems to be what happened. This is the movie where you could tell, like, the marketing department was licking their chops after Wayne's World was a hit because they were like, we could totally say move over Wayne and Garth. Oh yeah. oh yeah, here comes Sean Astin and Stony. <laughs> here comes yeah. Stony and Dave. Oh man, good times. <laughs> so, is this Les Mayfield's best movie? Oh, that's right. We were going to talk about uh, Mayfield joints. So, I've so seen three Mayfield joints. I saw. Okay. Ins- I've seen Encino Man. Mm-hmm. I saw Flubber. Okay. And I saw Blue Streak. Okay. Of those three, probably the best one. Uh, I don't remember the other two, so yes. I I've seen his Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street remake, okay, which is fine. But what are we doing here? Did you see that because you were chasing that John Hammond? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that had to have been it. It was either that or like my weird junior high Perkins crush. You, were you the only person in junior high who had a crush on Elizabeth Perkins? Yeah, that went strong for like seven years. <laughs> wow. It was weird. It was the thing, like, I dare not speak of in junior high. <laughs> I would just write book reports about it. Um, no, yeah, so, like, he did. Adam, I've seen, he wrote another book report on He Said, She Said. <laughs> you have to pick a different subject. Yeah. It's like, you can't just write dot, 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 why Wilma's underrated in the Flintstones. <laughs> like, just because you have a crush on her doesn't mean she's underrated. <laughs> it's like, I want tangible examples of the underratedness of this performance. Um, yeah, I never saw Flubber. I watched like half of Blue Streak, but that was not my jam. And then I've never seen American Outlaws, The Man, or Codename The Cleaner. No, me either. And it seems fitting that, like, when they were looking for someone to direct Codename the Cleaner, they were like, let's get that guy who made The Man. Mm -hmm. Because those movies seem interchangeable to me. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Mm. This was fun. It was fun. Uh, uh, Happy birthday once again. I hope this lived up to all your birthday wishes. It was the light entertainment that I knew it would be, and it was great. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And thank you guys very much for listening. As always, go to fthismovie.com every day for reviews, articles, lists, podcasts, whatever. Uh, Check in for Junesploitation starting next week. You can tweet us at fthismovie and hashtag everything Junesploitation. Or you can email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, Adam, and happy birthday. Thanks. All I, I, I got to go get something to eat because all I did today was I wheezed a freeze pop at my sister's house and now I'm full of fundage, but I got to go get some grindage at Portillo's. Meat group. <laughs>